a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shainoto. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Come from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Faran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and his rays flashed from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with your own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. They rejoice like a feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. That I might rest in the day of trouble. When he came up to the people, he invaded them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like a deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are a people in need of you, and uh, sometimes it's very difficult for us to see how much we need you. Uh, We are a people to which you desire to use to show others that they are in need of you. And because of the reality that it's difficult for us to see our need for you, we are sometimes very poor representations of you, very poor witnesses and testimonies, vessels for your glory, for those who need you. And I pray today that you will help us to see through the pain of 
Habakkuk and Israel uh, more deeply our need for you, more deeply uh, your desire to use us and how so, and therefore how we should come to you in prayer and how we should come to you as uh, your creation. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, we need to do a little background uh, into our story before we get too deep into it. Um, So, Israel uh, has uh, come to a place of great mourning, great fraught, great angst. They are uh, very sad, upset, desperate for answers because of where they're at. Um, They have been uh, taken out of Egypt at this point. They've wandered through the wilderness. They've entered the promised land, and the promised land has been taken from them. And they have been batted about through conquering um, civilizations and had moments uh, where they had some of their own opportunity to rule themselves and to have some peace and to do life as they think they should and how, as they want to, but uh, they have been brought back into captivity again and their numbers are dwindling, they're being killed, they're being persecuted. It is looking like their nation state is going to be coming to an end and they are desperate. And uh, we come to uh, Habakkuk, who is interesting uh, in the sense that he is one of the few prophets who does not at any point come to Israel and say, I have received a word from God, and this is it. What we have in these three chapters of the book is uh, the first two chapters are a conversation between him and God, and the third chapter is a prayer of praise uh, with a minor uh, supplication in it. Um, And so we uh, have an interesting prophet who we learn from, because he talks with God and he praises God. Um, so his conversation in the, uh, with God in the first two chapters uh, kind of starts off with the reality of him saying, look, what the heck is going on? There is this nation called Babylon and they have captured us and they're abusing us and they're killing us and... You're not doing anything. And so his first question is kind of how long must I, how long must we wait for you to answer our call for help? And God uh, starts off by answering, uh, think back to the work I've done. Remember how I have kept you to this point. Remember what I have done for you uh, to this point. And then he talks about how terrible uh, the deception of the or description of uh, how terrible the Babylonian army is. He basically says, "Yeah, they're terrible people, but I am using their selfishness for my plan right now. I haven't abandoned you to this point. I'm not going to abandon you now. I am using them." So the second question uh, he asks is, uh, "Why do you tolerate this treacherous people, this Babylonian nation, there and their army?" And uh, he describes uh, how good God is, and he then describes how terrible Babylon is, and he says, well, you know, how could you allow these people to continue doing what they're doing? And God, his second answer um, is, uh, he says, first, 
there is a prophet on the watchtower. He's looking down upon you, and he is, you are awaiting his answer. He has an answer. And then the second response is, and the Lord promises that the answer will be revealed. You will see how I'm at work, and my plan will be become visible to you. The last thing he talks about is this contrast between God and the wicked, which we're going to look at further later. And then he goes into a description of what an evil people is, and he uses Babylon as his guide. And so he has five woes to which he proclaims. And he says, woe to the extortioner or to the imperialists, uh, speaking of ba- the behavior of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, as uh, some of you might read. Then he says, woe to the greedy and the arrogant. And he condemns the Chaldeans or the Babylonians for their covetedness. He says, woe to those who build on bloodshed. He criticizes them for their violence. Woe to the drunk and the violent. And he uh, censures the Chaldeans' treachery. And last, he says, woe to the maker of an idol. And that is the, the end of chapter 2. And then we jump into Habakkuk and his prayer uh, in verses uh, 1 through 19 of chapter 3. So we start with uh, a bit of a, con- a confession and a petition in his prayer here. In verse 2, the first uh, verse is just kind of setting this up as a hymn, as a song. It is a praise song. It is not just a piece of writing. It likely was sung in some way or uh, experienced in a musical form in some way at the, uh, in the church. But in verse 2, um, we read, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known with wrath. Remember mercy. Um, the word there, report, which most of you read, could be uh, translated as well in, as the word fame. It means to be known, to be known by a lot. Um, and then the word fear there is uh, the word awe, to stand in the presence of something bigger than you, something awesome, something greater, more glorious than you. Um, the gist of the entire chapter is... It, well, the interesting part about this entire chapter is this is the only place where there is a petition given to, uh, by Habakkuk in this uh, really chapter of praise. And he's asking God to do something. And uh, the remainder of the prayer, he's just talking about God's greatness for the most part. And he's uh, basking in what God has done in the past. And he's expressing uh, quiet confidence, therefore, in what God's going to do in the future. But right now he's talking about in our day and in our time, which basically, you know, is what it is. Right now he's saying, I would like you to do something. He's calling on God to renew the work to which uh, he made known in the pa- He made himself known in the past. Um, the sense is that Habakkuk meant for God to do a work of new redemption from the tyranny of Babylon as he had delivered Israel from the old tyrant in Egypt. So there is a, a sense to which Israel is dying, Israel is being destroyed, they're being, captivated, they're held, being held captive, and uh, Habakkuk is saying, God, you've, you've done this before, and we need you to do it right now. 
we need a new act of redemption to be brought out of Babylon as we were once brought out of Egypt. Um, it's a pretty common for the people of Israel and especially for its prophets, its kings, to re- focus on what God did during that time. That was a, a big fulfillment of promise and one of their statutes of faith. One of the things to which in their life and in their experience they could look back upon and say, this is how we know God is with us. So Psalms 103, uh, 7 says, He made known his ways to Egypt, or made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. This was something that was a part of their worship of God to remember what he did through Moses and what he did in Egypt by bringing them out. The last request involves mercy. Uh, we need you to do something on our behalf, perhaps that we don't deserve. Um, We need you to remember mercy in light of your wrath. Verses uh, 3 through 15 are what's uh, known as a theophany. Um, It's uh, basically a description of God, or a description of an appearance of God in great power and glory often involving the events of the Exodus and giving the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Um, and so verses 3 through 15 is just straight praise for, of who God is and what he did, largely the Exodus, but some of uh, other things in there. Um, so we, I'm going to go through these, some of these verses real quickly, just kind of hit on some main points, and then afterwards try to put it together for you to make it, seem, make it sense of it all. Um, in verse 3, we read that God came from uh, these uh, two places and that he, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And these two places were just two places that they would have traveled through after the Exodus as they're wandering in the wilderness. And so both areas uh, are in the south of Judea and uh, uh, it's just reminding the people that, hey, I took you through out of Egypt and through the wilderness Remember that that is who I am. And then we talk, it tells us about his splendor, which could be uh, seen as glory. And uh, his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And this idea in Scripture, that word there for splendor or glory, um, sometimes it refers to revealing God's majesty or glory to foreigners uh, in Isaiah. But other times in uh, Psalms, uh, a couple of times in First Chronicles, it is the idea to, of a greater or lesser degree. The expression, the expression implies the experience of astonishment and joy to the world. Uh, that leads to those who experience it to bow down in reverent submission. And so there is uh, also this uh, description of God as holy. He is the holy one. And so you have a God of uh, glory, a God who has used his glory to show it to Israel in a tangible way, and a God who is holy, that is not going to do wrong by Israel, is going to be a God of good. In verse 4, um, we read that uh, his brightness was like light and rays flashed from his hands and there he, was, there he veiled his power. And um, there's a lot of discussion about what kind of light this actually is. Is it sunlight? Is it lightning? Is it 
some other things. The, what's needed to understand is it was an experience of great light, of great power, of great revealing. And so there was a brilliance about it. There was a significance about it. There was an intensity of, his, of the light that also required it to be dulled in the presence of humankind. And so you have a constant, the ability of God to have this concentrated power, but the need for God to dull it. But if he were to undull it, the understanding that with that light, he can do what he wants to do. He could take action for the people to which he has chosen. In verse uh, 6, uh, we read, He stood and measured the earth and looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered and everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Here we just see again uh, Habakkuk looking back to the past. God's power and majesty were the answer to Habakkuk's needs. And he understood it through what he had done in the past. How he had taken them out of Egypt. And the descriptions also uh, suggest that the prophet was looking at, that the prophet is looking at a powerful God who can withstand the onslaughts of any enemy. He stood, I mean, he's bigger than the earth. He created it. He's bigger than the nations. He created them. Uh, the eternal mountains, he scattered them. The everlasting hills, he sank low. He has power over everything in this world. And therefore, he can defeat and move and use anything in this world to which he desires to. And so we see this description of a great God who has control and is also everlasting. Verse 7, we read that he, as he was marching through past a couple of different tribes, a couple of different people groups, um, as far as we can tell, there's nothing that tells us these people were really good with God or really bad with God. They just happened to be there. And because they saw him marching through, there was a fear. Uh, they simply are portrayed as nomads encamped along the line of a march of a terrifying army, fearful that it may turn its attention to them. They didn't wake up that day fearing or thinking that this army was coming through, but when they saw the power of it, they had to stop and consider who they are in relation to who that army is, and it made them think, I hope they don't look at me. In verse 8, we read, uh, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Uh, just a picture of, first off, where is God's anger directed? It is not at his inanimate things. We as human beings have an ability to do something that the rest of his creation does not, and that is to say to God, no. And we are the ones who do so, and we are the ones, therefore, his wrath is poured out to. He is not angry at the rivers. He has control totally over the rivers. Um, but we also see this uh, chariot of salvation, uh, the horses and chariots upon which Habakkuk sees the Lord riding are figurative descriptions of God's mighty power. Again, just revealing his glory, his greatness, and he comes against them 
like in, uh, comes against his enemies like a great, powerful army. Uh, in verse 9, you stripped the sheath of your bow, calling for many arrows, and you split the earth with rivers. In the Old Testament, the bowl is a, a symbolizing, it symbolizes the power and welfare or warfare of God uh, or in general. Um, the same word for Hebrew, uh, it, that uh, bow it appears here, is the same one that uh, is used in the term rainbow from Genesis 9. If you're familiar with uh, Noah and the ark and the flood, um, at the end, uh, uh, God tells him that he will place this bow, his wrath, in the picture of a rainbow over the waters as a, a reminder of his covenant with his people that he will never again destroy them with water. But we have a picture of him being able to. He has every ability in his power to use his wa- the water as he pleases um, and to pour out his wrath when he... Uh, desires to again. Um, and so uh, he talks about how his, the power to separate the earth. He can use water to separate people, to separate uh, land. Um, and we start to see this pattern of people being separated at some time. Uh, it starts to begin here. And in verse 10, we read that the mountains saw you and withered. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. Um, it's not a difficult interpretation. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging waters swept on. Uh, God has control, and uh, God is bigger than even the mountains and the raging waters. Um, the waters could not come after God. They just swept on by because they have no power when it comes to God. Whereas we, if we were thrown into the raging waters, could be in very deep trouble. And then the deep gave forth its voice. Uh, The last two lines uh, could be read. He gave uh, the deep its voice, high its hands he lifted. The deep is the same word used in Genesis 1, uh, verse 2. The darkness was upon the face of the earth. It it also, again, refers to the flood. Um, It overwhelmed the flood that overwhelmed the earth uh, in the days of Noah. Um, the word refers to the forces of the sea, which uh, God gives, uh, which are in complete obedience to God. Um, the hands of the deep, it's like the waves the Lord lifted like weapons against the earth. He could move the waves in the ways to which he desired. Um, verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Um, God is eternal. And the sun and the moon stood in the uh, sun and the moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows. You put them there, they stayed there as long as you want them to be there. Um, at the flash of your glittering spear, that's how they appeared. He put them there, he keeps them there, he uses them as he desires. Um, God is sovereign. He is in control. And his sovereignty is eternal. It is forever. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You you thrust the nations with anger. Um, uh, You could translate the march as strode through. It can mean march. It can mean uh, uh, walk through. Um, Interestingly, it appears uh, a different 
in a couple of different ways. In Job, uh, the march is the those who are evil, kings of terror, will be marched off into destruction. But in uh, a couple of other places, it uh, has a very different connotation. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open to that middle part and find Psalms and turn to chapter 68. We're going to read from it in a second. While you're doing so, though, listen to Isaiah 63, verse 1. Isaiah 63, 1 reads, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bazaar? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. In Psalm 68, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. It reads, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance at its languish. Your flock found dwelling in it, in your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. So we see these two passages where God is marching through and it is in order to save it is in order to bring out uh, those who are suffering to bring them into life to bring them into joy and so there is an understanding of God's march as powerful but there is a joy to which can be found in it there is a a joy a uh, life to which could come And so there is a certain, for those who uh, want to find God, him marching through should be celebrated. The threshing is uh, a separating. Um, At that time, oxen were used to to move around in a circular pit filled with uh, wheat or barley to separate the ears of the grain from the stalk by trampling on the grain. Um, And so the prophet here uh, sees God as the master master farmer uh, separating the nations. And as we saw um, in Psalms as well, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners of prosperity or to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. There's separation of those to which God is going to save and those to which God is going to leave behind. In verse uh, 13, uh, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Um, God marched to save. He went to save. He came to save. And he's going to destroy those uh, who remain wicked. Verses 14 and 15. "You You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoice as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty water. Just again, the power of God, the what God is going to do, he's going to uh, use his, his arrows, his bow, uh, his wrath on the heads of uh, those who fight against him, but he's also going to use it on his warriors. Uh, 
and he will uh, destroy those he needs to destroy and save with his power those he needs to save. Um, the entire verse kind of just describes the victory of God over his enemies, um, both through his wrath poured out for destruction and his grace and mercy poured out to salvation. Um, none of us started as anything but an enemy of God. God's power is used to destroy every enemy in one of two ways. So he's looking back, he's seeing God, and through this we see um, some things about who God is. And just kind of uh, reaffirming these, uh, God's glory, his import, his power, he's powerful. God's greater than the great things of this world. The mountains, the waters pale, even the earth pales. And he's able to use all of that for his plan, for his glory, for his use. He's holy, he's morally and ethically perfect. He will love exactly as he should but he's wrathful because he's holy. He demands a moral people. He needs people who uh, will be obedient to him to live in the creation to which he desires. And so he will punish. There will be a separation. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's the highest of all power and authority. He's controlling. He's not being controlled. This world does not move in a way that forces God to act. This world moves in a way because God designed it to act. And he's at work. He gave a promise of greater life to Abraham. He gave the promised child to Abraham and Sarah. He gave them the law through Moses. He saved them. Uh, he saved the firstborn at Passover. He led them out of Egypt and destroyed Egypt's army with the water. He held back so Israel could walk through he guided them and fed them through the wilderness, and he's working through his creation for his purpose, not being controlled by it. He's eternal. He's unchanging. All his nature has been displayed by his good works previously, forever, will be forever true. Uh, sorry, his good works that were shown to us previously will forever be true about him. How he works might change, but he will never change. All the good things Egypt saw about God in the Passover, in the Exodus, in the wilderness did not cease simply because God started to act in a different way. God is eternal and who he is will always be who he is. But he might act in different ways. He will save and he will pour out wrath. He will separate. And he will be victorious. His glory will be revealed through the protection of his chosen people, the remnant of his covenant with Israel through Abraham, and through his wrath poured out on everyone else. So in uh, this book, we are confronted with how do we deal with the evil of this world? How do we deal with the pain in this world? How do we deal with not understanding why God is acting in a certain way? And one of the first things we see about Habakkuk is he does not question God. He takes his questions to God. He doesn't think that there's something wrong with God, but he doesn't understand. So he goes to God and he says, what's up? Why are you doing this? I don't get it. Now, to be clear, there was desperation. 
and there was a bit of frustration in his approach of God. But he knew God would have the answer. And so he went and asked. But what we see in Habakkuk is this is not primarily about the justice of God. That's definitely a theme to which the prophet assumes rather than debates. It's not about human doubt since the prophet maintains strong communication with God and expects the right answers from God. And it's not about human suffering and helplessness before the world's evil power. That is just the setting of the book, not the theme. As uh, I was reading one commentary on it, and he was uh, using the thoughts of a, uh, another theologian, he writes this. Habakkuk is, about all, uh, is, above all else, a book about the purpose of God and about the realization of his will for this world. She explain, er, explicates the theme in terms of God's promise to Abraham. God will, for human life, to have life abundantly, God, or sorry, God's will for human life is to have life abundantly. God's will for a human community of joy, security, and righteous faithfulness to the divine will and lordship of God. In short, this is a book about the providence of God. So the argument here is in Habakkuk, we see God laying out to a lost people a better life. Um, what we see in the Old Testament is God creates this covenant with Abraham. He makes this promise and he says, you promise to do this, I will fulfill my promise through you. Of course, they fail. Um, it started with Abraham. The first promise was, I will give you a son. And Abraham and his wife said, well, God's not given us a son, so we're going to do this a different way. And so Abraham sleeps with um, one of the servants of his wife uh, to have a kid. And that's the reality of the covenant uh, throughout. And... Uh, what we see in the, the minor prophets is this theme of God trying to bring forth out of Israel a righteous people, a people to which he can live the life to which he wants for them. And so we see in uh, Habakkuk uh, this desire for a life of abundance, this life of joy and community, of security and faithfulness to the divine will and lordship of God. Uh, faith is a big part of it. If, if you uh, have your fingers still in uh, Habakkuk, you can turn back to chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. Starting verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all people. So we start with uh, this idea of the importance of faith and then this description of what the unfaithful look like. Our prophet learned the importance of faith in this story. So what we learn is faith and facts that we can see are not always compatible in the world of sense and sight. But that's not the whole world. What we see is not the absolute total of everything that can be seen or is real or true. There is a world of justice that only God fully comprehends. 
His people must accept by faith what is promised by God, even if they cannot confirm in fact by their current circumstances. We have to trust that God is who he is, who he's shown himself to be forever. And therefore we know he's going to do what is needed for him to remain faithful, loving, holy, righteous, and wrathful. It is faith. But the just shall live by faith. This uh, is a verse that is quoted in the uh, New Testament frequently, especially by Paul. Um, We're going to start reading uh, in the uh, uh, New Testament soon. If you uh, want to head there, we're going to be in Galatians. But first, we um, have God's revelation to Habakkuk, which is, uh, becomes this almost seminal thought, this uh, truth that becomes more important than any other truth to Paul, um, which is this understanding of justification by faith. Uh, Habakkuk learned to be God's principle of operation in the Babylonian invasion, and Paul was inspired in sight uh, or Paul with inspired and sought Saul to be God's universal principle of salvation. Faith is not about you. And you might not see it. You might not understand it. But it comes from God. Um, our prophet in Israel wanted to believe that they were good because their obedience to the law. At least in comparison to the Babylonians. And therefore the treasures God would bless them with. Right? I'm good. I obey the law. These people are awful. They disobey the law. God blesses those who obey the law. So not only am I in obedience and am I secure, the treasures that God gives me are trophies of my self-righteousness, are what I can use to show that I am good. And so they're dependent upon a few things to sustain their life as it is Evil people, being better than those of the evil people, being superior. And earthly treasures. I have to gain things to prove that I'm good because God blesses those who are good. And so in his description of Babylon back in verse uh, 5 of uh, chapter 2, again he says, Because he enlarges his desire as hell, He is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all people. We have to grow in our pride. We have to grow in our self-righteousness. We have to grow in our appearance of being better than everybody else because there's not enough self-righteousness to fulfill our need for salvation our need to be right before God. We have to continue to accumulate. We have to achieve. We have to gain. We have to experience because there's not enough earthly treasures to ever fulfill that deep need in us to find life in God. But God's big lesson uh, to our prophet is God's going to judge Judah, Israel. Uh, But that judgment will not be final. And God promised to spare a remnant based solely on their faithfulness to God, their total dependence and dependability on God. Which is where Paul 
builds his argument for justification by faith. So Galatians 3, if you've turned there, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 is where we're going to read. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. The righteous shall live by faith, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise Spirit through faith. I'm also going to read from Romans 1, 16 through 17. You don't have to turn there uh, if you don't want to. Um, but again, Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the, gent- or to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We are justified by faith that God did it for us, apart from us, to give us a life that we cannot find in and of ourselves. Which leads us to the gospel, the good news. Um, So one of the things that our prophet found Um, great peace in was the fact that God is this watchtower that he talks about in chapter 2. He is set above his remnant, above his people, looking down upon them, watching over them, protecting them when he needs to protect them, pouring out his wrath when it's needed to pour out his wrath. But we have a fuller picture of God's work of redemption. For we know that God didn't just sit in that watchtower for eternity. That one of the three persons of our triune God, Christ, stepped down from the watchtower and into his creation. And he marched through life with an obedience and a holiness that allowed him to march toward a hill carrying a cross. Carrying our sins, our failures, and the wrath we deserved. And so, in that march, we have the joy to which we read about earlier. There's a, a if you were, uh, one turn to Luke 10, we're going to read it quickly from Luke 10 in a moment, um, which is one of the uh, Gospels. It's near the uh, first uh, half of the uh, New Testament. Um, in Luke 10, God sends out some of his servants to go and do healings and to serve people and to help people. And then he brings them back, and he is getting testimony of what went down. In Luke ten seventeen through 20, this is what he tells them. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Israel's concern was they were looking at their own works, looking at their own absence of blessings. 
and saying, what the heck is going on here? This does not add up. God is not doing what he should be doing or he's not who we think he is. And God, his promise to us is, no matter what is going on, no matter what you're doing, how I'm using you, your promise is that your name, if you know the gospel, if you've come to understand that the watchtower stepped down and marched through this life towards the cross to die for your sins, to carry the wrath that you deserved so that you can be given the life only Christ deserved. Your name is written on the book of heaven. Your life is secure. It is done. It is over. You are justified by faith, not your works. Um, Jonathan Edwards, one of his very first sermons was, called, uh, was titled Christian Happiness. And he says, um, there are three things that uh, should make Christians happy. Um, first being, uh, because our bad things will turn out to good, which we see in Romans eight twenty eight, 28, uh, the promise that uh, God works out for good everything for those who love him. Um, the second is our good things, like our adoption and our justification and our union with Christ can never be taken away. And the best, best things are yet to come. At the end of the sermon, um, I read uh, someone who paraphrased his uh, at the end of a sermon, this, it says, if you know this, if you know your names are written in heaven, if you know your good things can never be taken away from you, therefore you may now look down upon the whole army of worldly affliction and suffer. You can consider with joy that however great they are, however numerous, even though they might join all their forces together against you and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits, Forms and appearances spend all their strength, vigor, and violence against you. They cannot do you any real hurt or mischief, and it will all be in vain. You may triumph over them all if you know these things. Nothing will come at you that can rob you of your name being written uh, in heaven, securing your salvation and your joy. That's why uh, Habakkuk ends his... Uh, praise with this peace um, but this also this morning so in verse 16 I, he- I hear and my body trembles my lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones my legs tremble beneath me I will, uh, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us there is a trembling of mourning for the- those who have been destroyed by sin are those who are suffering because of sin. But there's also a trembling of his awe of God. And there's a peace at the same time as the morning. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I came to you with a question and you have answered my question. And I therefore have peace. Real peace is found in God. Real peace is found by going to God with our questions. And then in 17 through 19, he says, uh, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and produce 
and the produce of olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, my strength, he makes my feet like the deer, he makes me tread on high places, on my high places. He has a peace that says, even though everything could possibly go wrong, I can tread like deer in high places and have peace. And the figs were kind of a delicacy in Israel. Uh, Grapes were flavor to drink. Uh, The olive crop, on the other hand, becomes more important. It's a produce of oil for cooking and for lighting. So if you lose olive, you lose the ability to cook and to light. Grain and barley provided a staple of the diet. Losing food, sheep and cattle made up much of the wealth of Palestine, and sheep and goats provided wool for the occasional meat, uh, for or provided meat and the and wool, um, and so he is saying, look, all of your needs might disappear, all of your tastes, all of your uh, extras in life that you find satisfaction in might disappear. They might go away, but then in verse eighteen. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He exhibits a kind of relationship with God here, which enjoys the divine person more than the things the divine person can do for him. He put God above the fray of life, rejoicing in him and worshiping him with regardless of circumstances. He found joy in the person of God. And therefore, regardless of what was going on around him, because that God is sovereign and eternal, his joy is ever present. This idea of feet like deer, uh, it's a symbol in the Old Testament of uh, a sure-footedness in high places. Psalms 18.33, he says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. It is definitely more dangerous to walk on small ridges alongside a mountain than it is to walk on the ground if you don't have sure-footedness. But the peace of God is sure-footedness on the ridges of that mountain. And so you're actually more secure there. There's less enemies who can attack you there than on the ground. And it offers quite the view. You get a much bigger view of who God is and the truth of his creation. So here's the reality of prayer. Again, if your prayer life has any depth to it and matches what the Bible calls us to pray and cry out for, you're ultimately saying, God, I'm praying for hard times, even though you might not have ever thought about it. Or you might have realized what you're praying for and you thought, Maybe the cup can come to me in a different way. If you rejoice not in circumstances, uh, but in God, you have a peace. And in that peace, you can seek God. And if you go to him in prayer and you ask him for his joy and your peace, he will certainly freely offer it to you. There's no doubt about that. But some painful things will will necessarily have to happen. 
First, you'll be confronted by your sin, your selflessness, your lust, your self-righteousness, how you live and behave based upon your circumstances, how you're a user, an abuser. Those two people groups that saw him marching through, when you're confronted with the power and the holiness of God, no matter what you think about your goodness, when you see him for who he is, you see yourself for who you are. And you're you fail, you fall short. And so guilt and shame are a must and they will hurt. But they're a must only so God can lead you to his peace. He will have to remove idols. Hopes will be dashed, treasures will be taken, priorities changed. He will do what is needed in his time to make you dependent upon him as he did with Habakkuk and Israel. You have placed your treasures in many things to deal with the emptiness in yourself. And God, if you want his peace, needs to remove you from those things. And that will hurt. But it's to lead you to his peace and his joy. Matthew 6, 9 through 24 reads, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye of the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light... Is light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devour, or devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If your eye is always on the treasures of this world, you're full of darkness. And God needs to remove those treasures for your eye to go to him. He needs to draw you to his light and away from your darkness. And that will hurt. If we seek the goods of others and we desire for God's glory and gospel to go out to the whole world that brings them abundant life and joy. If we pray for someone's salvation and for someone's restoration, for someone's, someone who is longing to find peace, then one of the things that those people need to do is to see where their true treasure lies. And you know how God reveals it? The same way he did to Habakkuk through Israel. Pain. He puts us in situations where the world says they are absent of the things we need for happiness. And we can be like Habakkuk and have peace. That surpasses understanding. So if you want someone to have peace, and you pray for God to have peace, one of the things you could end up having to do is to have peace in pain. So they can see the real treasure of who God is. Are you willing to allow relationships to be broken? 
so that you can grow closer to God or someone can see his peace and joy in the midst of your mourning? Your job to end or to not get the job you really want. Have you ever considered our young church? Have you thought about where you're going to live? Have you ever asked God, God, where can I hurt in my home so people can see your glory, your peace, your joy in me? In what neighborhood can I be that peace that surpasses understanding and reveals the treasure of who you are to a world longing? Are you willing to serve him with your money, with your wealth? Are you willing to allow him to take it so that you can grow closer, more dependent upon him, and to allow the world to see your peace in the absence of your wealth? Are you willing to use your time and allow God to take your time that you wanted to use for something else and see him and grow dependent upon him in those situations? If you were thinking of, are you willing to wait on marriage because God wants to grow you dependent upon him in your singleness? Are you willing to be able to say to a world that idol, makes an idol of marriage, I can have joy absent of marriage? As Christ had an abundant life absent of marriage, I can have an abundant life absent of marriage. Then we have to seek the salvation and restoration as well as growth of sinners into God's joy and peace. Are you willing to put yourself in the position to be hurt by sinners so that you can give them God's peace through his gospel? Um, one of the themes that uh, one of the commentators wrote about in uh, his uh, um, exegesis of uh, our prophet was human anger versus God's anger. And he says this, human anger wants death and destruction and deliverance. Divine anger seeks justice, intercession, and discipline. Human anger responds to unhappy situations. Divine anger responds to human sin, oppression, and helplessness. Human anger seeks immediate action. Divine anger seeks human repentance. Human anger says, act now, act now. Divine anger says, I will act when people are, can recognize my actions and respond as I desire. If you earnestly pray for peace in this world, if you earnestly pray, pray for salvation of those who need him, God is likely going to say, okay, go and be my vessel of glory in this person's life, in these people's lives. And those people are sinners. And those people's sins will hurt. If you love them and you love God, that will be your earnest prayer. And you will follow his calling and his leading. Habakkuk shows us that human anger and divine, shows us human anger and divine anger. He also shows us how the language of prayer, whether it be that of lament or that of praise, can lead us away from human anger into human patience, human righteousness, human faith, and human confession of God's salvation. I pray that his, uh, his conversation with God and his praise of God leads you to greater dependence upon God and therefore greater peace and joy. 
and leads you to pray difficult things and to understand when you pray things how difficult the answers might be. For a world that is hurting, they need a real treasure and it's going to hurt to show them that. Let's pray. Father, we need you because we are hurting, because we said no to you. But you and your great love for us said no, that is not what I want from you. I want for you greater than that. I want for you real life, real joy, real peace. I want you to be able to realize that you don't have to pursue righteousness on your own. That you don't have to look at the circumstances of your life and judge whether you are in a good place with me or not. You are justified by faith through my gospel. I died for you a holy and righteous death so that I can raise in new life and give you the life you desire, you need, you long for. Help us to know that truth, to celebrate it, to find peace in it, no matter what's going on in our life, and help us to be a people changed in that peace that begin to look outside of ourselves and at other people Help us to know the pain to which we need to go through to grow into your peace and your joy. And the difficultness that you're going to call us to at times to help others in that same path. In your name we pray. Amen.